you would please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. As you're opening there, we'll be reading just the last few verses that we didn't finish last week. Chapter 34 and 35 go together. 34 is talking about Israel's enemies, and it singles out Edom, but it's talking about all the enemies of Israel and how God is going to destroy their armies and their land is going to turn from fruitful to being desert and barren. And then 35 is the opposite. It's showing Zion restored. And so last week we looked at the fact that in the first couple verses, the wilderness and the solitary place and the desert are all going to blossom. And uh, personally, I believe the area around Jerusalem is going to be restored much like it was when God created the Garden of Eden. And it's going to produce. And you hear things nowadays about famine and poverty and particularly the land not producing enough food for people. That's not going to be a problem when Messiah reigns. And so Israel's going to be restored. What is probably equally, if not greater, in uh, basically in magnitude, is they get to see the glory of the Lord. I think most of us remember Moses asked to see God's glory. And he got to see the back parts of God's glory because he couldn't see it as normal flesh and blood. And so how much of that glory it doesn't describe, it just says they get to see God's glory. And that's got to be just an amazing thing. And then they get to see the excellency of God. And so through Messiah, they're going to see his glory and his excellency. And we covered that last week. Now, the condition of the people when all this happens is they're weak, feeble, and fearful. And if you look today, the Jews struggle. Um, They are stronger in, in many respects than they have been in years. But when all the armies of the earth come against them and they still are dispersed, as a people as a whole, they still are weak, feeble, and fearful. They're fearful about what other people are going to do to them. And then verse 4 through 7, we talked about God's vengeance and recompense for Zion. And so, when we looked at that, it highlights the fact that their God It's not just a God, not just the God, it's your God talking to the Jewish people will save you and the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will be healed, the dumb will sing, and the desert will have plenty of water. And we talked about a little bit how if you look at pictures of the Middle East right now, most of them are pretty desert. Um, we might take pictures around our country and the Carolinas, you see the green forest and the fall, you see all the changing leaves. 
Or you might look at the Grand Canyon and it doesn't look near as barren as pictures of the Middle East. The Middle East just looks like a, a big desert. Uh, there's rocks and dust and more rocks and more dust. And it's saying here that their land is going to have plenty of water. And where we left off was verses 8 through 10. So we'll read that now in verse thir- in chapter 35. It says, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up go up thereon, it shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return, and come to Zion with songs, and everlasting joy upon their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so we have this highway. How is this highway described? Okay, the way of holiness. And so it's a path home for the Jews, but it's also a way of holiness because Messiah is going to rule and reign in Jerusalem. The path to Jerusalem is now going to be considered a way of holiness. Who can travel on this this path? Okay, the redeemed will travel on the path. Who won't be on the path? Okay, the unclean. And so the unclean can't travel on the path. The wayfaring are allowed to come. But what's going to happen when they, when they come on this path? Okay, I'm hearing people say a little bit, but I can't make it out. Okay. I don't think they'll be able to get on the path. Now, I don't know how that'll work, but, uh, you know, it just simply tells us in here, you know, if you look at, it says the unclean shall not pass over. And you're right, if the unclean could get on it, they would be in danger because when it comes to sin coming into the presence of God, there's a judgment that comes when that happens. And the good news for us is Christ took our judgment so that we can be declared righteous and we can be redeemed. And so... Fools, though, are they going to be on there? I was reading the uh, English Standard Version. I think you put this in mind for me, actually. <laughs> okay. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Okay. So, even fools, if they're 
going to follow the path of holiness, they can get on it, but once they do, they're not going to err. They're not going to make the foolish mistakes. And so, um, Kurt said that's for him, but I think a lot of us can probably relate to that, that, you know, we look at some of the things of God and we say to ourselves, I wasn't smart enough to realize how to deal with that. And so God in his mercy allows fools to be on there, but when they get on that path, they won't err. Who else is not, or what else is not allowed on the path? Okay, the ravenous animals, the wild animals, the lions. And so what we have here is a path and my best understanding on it, and I'm not going to claim that it's infallible, but when I think about the end times and the things that are to come, one of the things is that when Messiah comes the second time, he's going to gather the Jews from the four corners of the earth. There's nothing that I've ever read that says that that's going to be a miraculous, instantaneous, they're all home. And so I believe personally that this is a path that Messiah establishes so that all the Jews can come home. A lot of them are probably in Africa and other nations around the world. I don't know exactly how all this is going to work. But I do know one thing, if God says he's going to gather all the Jews back to Israel, or to the land of Israel, you can mark his words that that's what's going to happen. We just don't necessarily know how. And so this way of, this highway is part of the restoration of Zion. And then we come to the last last verse and it describes their restoration and uh, it was kind of funny last week after we read this Brenda and I were in the car and she said I remember a song there was a group that sang a song that this verse probably you know was the source of their lyrics and the group was Jews for Jesus and they talked about everlasting joy being on their heads and they're going to obtain joy and gladness. And so when you look at this verse, the first thing you notice is that the ransom are going to be returned. And so Messiah is going to ransom the Jewish people, his people. They're going to come to Zion with songs and singing represents a very emotional time, and in this case, a very joyful time. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes we can sing, and it can be a very somber song. But this is a very joyful song. They're going to come in with joy and gladness. And so they're going to receive Messiah, but also they're going to see their nation restored. And they're going to see really as close to a perfect environment as you can get and still have sinful people, you know, as part of it. 
And there's no more sorrow. And so Zion eventually is going to be restored. And it's in direct contrast to what we saw last week with the enemies of Israel. The enemies of Israel destroyed. Zion is restored. Is that how it is today? Not at all. It's the other way around, isn't it? It seems as though the enemies of things that are godly and godliness, and especially of Israel, the enemies prosper, and those that are God's chosen people, the Jewish people, they're persecuted and they're put down. And so here it's going to come back to where God restores Israel to its rightful place. And so that sums up what we've been looking at in the first 35 chapters and really the overarching theme of those 35 chapters of Isaiah has been the fact that there's going to be judgment that's going to be poured out due to disobedience to the law. And the other theme that we've been seeing is that God's judgment isn't just limited to Israel, but all the nations that they might look to to get help, they're under God's judgment too. And so if you look at what we've covered, chapters 1 through 6, the day of Jehovah and Judah, chapters 7 through 12, the day of Jehovah and Israel, chapter 13 through 23, it has the ten burdens of nations. These are nations that Israel would have tried to go to for help to protect themselves from Assyria. And then... It culminates with God's judgment on the whole world, which was chapters 24 through 27. And then we got into the six woes upon Jerusalem, which is a little bit of a misnomer because one of those woes wasn't upon Jerusalem. And then the final wrath where Zion is restored. We're now about to see a very abrupt change. We've been reading all these passages, and now it's going to be more of a story, more of a narrative. And we're going to be looking at the idea of trusting God is going to be tested. Some call it a historical addendum to the book of Isaiah. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to chapter 36... Actually, before we get there, turn to chapter 1, because I think it's important to understand the background of what Hezekiah is dealing with. In chapter 1, we see the state of the nation. We're used to, on TV, every so often, the president gives a state of the union. Well, this is a more accurate state of the nation of Israel. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says a vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. <coughs> For the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. I think one of the key things that Isaiah starts out with in chapter 1 is the state of the nation. And there's one phrase that I think sums it up the best. They have forsaken the Lord. If you look on our currency, you'll find the inscription, In God We Trust. But if you look at our nation and our culture and how it has changed in the last, really, couple decades, I think Isaiah's statement about Israel could be made about our nation. And part of the reason I bring that up is when we think about Hezekiah, sometimes we think, oh, that was pretty easy for him. But it wasn't. What we're going to read about, if we put those circumstances into our nation, what you will find is that's the kind of pressure that he was facing in his day. And sometimes it's easy to overlook that. And so the first thing I want you to notice is the state of the nation is one of forsaking God. The second thing I want you to notice is that Judah confronts Ahaz. This is Hezekiah's father. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now and meet Ahaz, thou and Shujazhab thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And so that opened up the confrontation between Isaiah and Ahaz. And what God was saying through Isaiah to Ahaz is trust God. Don't trust the allies and political uh, things that you can pull because they're going to be under judgment. And that's where we got into those ten nations was each one of the nations that they might trust, they were going to find that those nations were under God's judgment too. And so that's the background that leads us to chapter 36. So if you turn to chapter 36, this reads a lot easier in that it's more a historical accounting 
It says, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Elikim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah Ashaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, say thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now in whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of the broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar? Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses. And if thou be able on thy part, to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away from the face of the captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And I, and I am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Elohim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. Speak not to us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master to speak <clears throat> to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the man that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered in the hand of the king of Syria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for this, <coughs> excuse me, saith the king of Assyria, 
make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me and eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take away take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of king of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad and the gods of Seraphim <clears throat> and have they delivered Samaria out of thy hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, answer him not. We'll just pause there. So who's the main player in this narrative? <clears throat> Who's that? Hezekiah. Okay. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, or I guess of, yeah, it would be Judah, the southern kingdom. And Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. Who's this Rabshakeh guy? Okay, he's a pretty important guy from the king. And he kind of has some very interesting things to say. And he asks the question, who do you trust? He puts in different words, but then he goes through a series of points. But he makes it real clear in verse 4, he says, What confidence is this wherein thou trusteth? So he's basically challenged the, challenging them on who do you trust. Now it's kind of interesting. This has been the theme that Isaiah has been working on for multiple chapters. He's been given multiple examples telling the king, and in this case, King Ahaz, which is Hezekiah's father, you need to trust in God. And what does Rabshakeh do? He comes and he basically says, who are you going to trust? Where is your trust going to be? The psalmist has some very interesting comments that would be very applicable to Hezekiah's day. It's also applicable to you and I today. Because I think God's asking you and I the same question through the circumstances of our life. Who are we going to trust? The psalmist says, In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. And so we need to fear God and not man. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes. 
And so, again, the psalmist tells us it's better to trust God than to trust not just any man, but even those that are rulers. And then another one in Proverbs, the fear of man bringeth a snare. But whosoever put his trust in the Lord shall be safe. If you look at what Rabshak is doing, he's trying to cause the Jews to fear the Assyrian army. And this proverb would directly apply to that. The fear of man, the fear of the Assyrian army. And so... Isaiah sums it up pretty good in chapter 26, verse 3 and 4. It says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he, what? Trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. I find it kind of interesting that we are coming back to the same exact location where Isaiah confronted Ahaz. Look at verse 2 at the end. Verse 2 at the end, it said, And he, talk about Rabshakeh and, and the delegation from Hezekiah, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool, in the highway of the fuller's field. And I'll read to you Isaiah 7, 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth thou meet Ahaz, thou and Shirjazhub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. One person put it this way, when we fail, and I think the first aspect of failing is failing to trust God, then eventually God brings us back to fish in that pond again. Here's the exact same place that Ahaz refused to trust God, and now Hezekiah, his son, is being confronted with who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust man? And so he's in this same location. Now Hezekiah is not there, but the confrontation is in the exact same location. And so Rabshakeh has some points what are the points of his message that he's proclaiming not just to the delegation but to all those that can hear him? <coughs> There's several of them, but the one that's scariest to me is in verse 10. Okay. <laughs> it says, it's the Lord who sent me here. Okay. So, Rabshakeh is turning things around and he's basically saying, you know, your God sent me here to destroy you. Um, I didn't happen to have that one on my list. Um, what's the first one that 
you think he's making. He's making this question, who are you going to trust? And who's the first person they meant, or the first group of people they mentions? Egypt. Egypt. And so his first point is Egypt can't help you. And you see it in verses 4 through 6, as well as 8 and 9. Now, for the Jewish people, they've been hearing Isaiah say the same thing for quite some time. We had some previous chapters not too long ago where Isaiah didn't say Egypt directly, but he insinuated it. And then eventually he did put it bluntly. You can't go trust Egypt. It's not going to work. And so here comes Rabshakeh. And they're hearing the same thing. Don't trust Egypt. What's his next point though? Yeah. His next point is who can't you trust and why? And Brenda hit the why because of the altars. Who can't they trust? Well, they can't trust Hezekiah. They, they, that's, that's kind of a given throughout his theme here. But who's bigger than Hezekiah? Can't trust God. And the reason is Hezekiah destroyed his altars. Now we know that that's not true. We know that Hezekiah destroyed the altars that were basically of pagan gods. But that's not the spin that Rabshakeh puts on it. He basically says, you can't trust the Lord to deliver you. Because Hezekiah has destroyed all the altars that you would worship him on. So you can't trust him. What's his next point? Okay. Basically... There's a mixture of things going on, but if you summarized it, it would be, you're going to be treated well if you su surrender. So the first thing he, he highlights in his speech and his spin on things is, you can't trust Egypt, you can't trust your God, but if you trust us, you'll be treated well. All you got to do is surrender. How well do you think that worked? It wouldn't work at all. Okay, the Assyrians weren't noted for their treatment, their good treatment of others. But that's the spin he's putting on it to try and get them to give up. And then what's his his last point that he makes? Okay, how powerful he is. And so he then highlights... Other nations and gods have been conquered by Assyria. And so there are other side 
points that you could probably bring out here. Uh, like was said, the, the one that's kind of scary is the idea that God sent the Assyrians to destroy them. Is that a, a foreign idea to the Jews? Okay. It really isn't a big surprise to the Jews because they've been told through God that he's going to use other nations to judge them. So even though it's a little bit scary, it's not true. And so they've now been confronted with who are they going to trust? I want you to think about a hypothetical situation to better appreciate the position Hezekiah was in. What if, and this is purely hypothetical, what if the Chinese decide to make war with our country and they send a delegation over <coughs> And the delegation says, your armament, your weapons are old. We have these hypersonic missiles. And they gave the same type of speech that Rabshaka gave. But instead of it being just to a few people, and when it talks about the people that were on the wall, this was probably the leaders of Jerusalem would be the equivalent of them making an address to Congress. And they basically say, you need to surrender because we're stronger, we're better. And no matter who's president, they're put in a bad way. What are they going to do? And part of the reason I brought up the state of the nation what do you think the reaction would be of Congress? Would they be in agreement? Not at all. Some would probably say we need to surrender. Some would probably say we, we shouldn't surrender. Pardon me? Shoot them and send them back. Okay. <laughs> This is the kind of pressure that Hezekiah is under. I mean, when we read it, it's easy to pick out the points of Rabshakeh. He's spinning things to make them afraid and make them not trust that God will deliver them. Now, I can understand people being reluctant because our sinfulness makes us question whether God will come to deliver us. It's not a lack of his power. It's a lack of our being true to him. And so here's Hezekiah dealing with a nation that's probably in as much turmoil or close to it as what we see in our nation where we can't agree on things. 
there's differing ideas as to how to deal with it. In fact, we had a recent example. They had a spy balloon come over, and some said shoot it down, and others said it wasn't a threat. We couldn't even agree on that, and eventually they shot it down. Here's Hezekiah, and he's being confronted with the exact same thing that his father was. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust man? Are you going to trust the Assyrians? Are you going to trust the Egyptians? Or are you going to trust God? We could ask the same question about you and I today. Regardless of what the circumstance is, and some of us may be in more difficult circumstances than others, but the question comes back to you and I, who are we going to trust? Are we going to put our faith in God and just trust him because he's worthy of our trust? Or are we going to let circumstances dictate who we trust? Next week, we'll be covering what Hezekiah did. You can read ahead. It's a good story. And if you think about it, it fits. Isaiah has been beating the drum, trust God, trust God. And now Hezekiah is being tested on trusting God. Bill? Isn't that goes back to what they said earlier about the highway? That they, the righteous stay on it? On the highway? I didn't connect those. Um, I'd have to think about that a little bit to be certain. Um, uh, to stay, uh, stay with God's uh, trust in Him and stay on that highway? Definitely there is, is that, you know, staying on a way that, you know, is trusting God that, that we should do. But I don't know if I would equate the two two ways, you know, the highway, because I think that's a return of the Jews. But you're right, you know, it gets back to trusting God. Yes, ma'am. I think that concerning our country, that if we were faced <coughs> Well, the difficulty, I think, then and as well as now, is beating the drum may or may not have any impact because there's a lot of people hostile to Christianity and they aren't going to believe what we say. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. A lot of us are silent. They don't really know how many I don't think it's an issue of the majority. I think it's an issue of being a nation divided. We have a nation that is part Christian, some that think they're Christian, and then some that are hostile to Christianity. And I think that's what Hezekiah was dealing with also. Yeah, I saw a hand over here. Brother Dalton. 
Yeah, that's a parallel passage, isn't it, for Hezekiah? In the passage you're talking about, also talking about Hezekiah? Yeah, in the first temptation. Yeah. Yes. Brother Dalton brings up the fact that 2 Kings gives a more thorough accounting because initially they paid tribute to Assyria thinking that that would appease them and then here they're back again wanting to make war and so if you have time you ought to go look at 2 Kings was it chapter 18? 18 okay so, but it's a, a good reference point to see what all the circumstances were there. Kurt, did you have your hand up? Yeah, you look at this and, and Rabshakeh is asked to speak in Aramaic instead of Hebrew because they didn't want the people to know what he was saying. And so uh, we see parallels of withholding information in our day or false information you know, in Rabshakeh's situation. Well, we are running out of time. Let's close with a word of prayer. Um, go ahead and read, if you get a chance, the passage in Kings, as well as the next chapter, and we'll, we'll see how Hezekiah responds. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that encourages us to trust you because you are worthy of our trust. And Father, as we see Hezekiah, help us to be strong in our faith in you. We pray for the service that follows. We pray that you would <clears throat> give Pastor Caleb the words to say and that Christ would be exalted highly. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.